0: Hello brothers, sisters, and friends. Welcome to You Are the Current Resident podcast. This is the official podcast of the National Association of Letter Carriers, the union that represents 280,000 active and retired city letter carriers employed by the United States Postal Service. I'm Ed Morgan and again this week we're on Zoom with our national president, Brian Renfro. Hey Brian, how are you?
1: Hey Eddie, I'm doing well. For the listeners out there, I've apologize. I sound a little bit nasally this week, but um, I I sound a lot worse than I feel. So yeah, we're back on Zoom, and this time it's because uh, you've been out at the Leadership Academy all week.
0: Yeah, I'm right out in Lithicum Heights, Maryland. It was a great week, great trainings going on, a lot of writing, writing tips, and writing comprehension, and then public speaking. We had our public speaking night last night, the speeches went off great.
1: Yeah, it's always fun. This group that's out now, as the other classes have, really done a great job. But when we get into that second week, as you mentioned, that's really heavy in communication, it's fun to watch the growth that takes place, you know, between uh, not just the writing, but mainly, you know, when it comes to public speaking, that's something that most people have a tremendous fear of. And, you know, as leaders, in the present and the future that's uh, an important part of what they have to do is is communicate with our members and you know most people come into it pretty nervous and uh, we teach them kind of a how to do it a method and it's fun to watch them grow so we've enjoyed that this week
0: class was terrific so as always let's start off so uh where you been last week
1: yeah um, earlier the first part of the week i was out in las vegas We had a couple of events there, both in the same location. One was our Committee of Presidents, which meets twice a year where a lot of our state and branch presidents come get together and talk about different things that are going on. That's always beneficial to me to hear the kind of latest and greatest straight from our leaders at the local level as to challenges that they face and and issues that are happening on the workroom floor. and. I um was out there and, and had the chance to update the leadership of our branches and our states on a number of different things, so that's always a beneficial time. We do that a couple of times a year, once in the spring and once in the fall, and then immediately following that, we had our annual health benefit plan seminar, and uh, all the folks that work out at the NALC health benefit plan from Stephanie Stewart, director of health benefits, and all our staff out there, as they do every year, they did a phenomenal job putting together the seminar. And we had, I think, over 400 health benefit representatives from branches all around the country. And this is a very unique time for, uh, and as we move into 2024, a unique year for everything to do with health benefits. Every year when we have this seminar, it's to talk about the benefits for the next plan year, the premiums, obviously, just to share information with our health benefit representatives. But we also have a lot of other stuff happening that uh, is related to health benefits. We've talked on this podcast uh, several times now about implementation of the Postal Reform Bill that passed last year. We've got an entire episode uh, that we did a couple months ago that covers, you know, what's going to take place as far as integrating medicare and and some action that will be required from all active and retired city carriers so we had the opportunity with uh, all the people that were at the health benefits seminar to get into that i was just out there for one day in the beginning to address the group you know then along with stephanie our director and and our three national trustees we did a class where we kind of acted as a panel and answered a lot of questions. So um, it was great to see everybody out there. The uh, health benefit seminar was a success. So our health benefit representatives that are now they're back in their branches, I'm sure fielding a lot of questions from the members. So as we get closer to open season, which happens every fall for the following year, this year it begins on November the 13th and it ends on December 11th. And that's a period of time that all active and retired postal employees, including letter carriers and NALC members, of course, you have the opportunity to make changes to your health benefits. And, you know, if you're listening to this and and you do not currently have the NALC health benefit plan, I I strongly, strongly, strongly encourage you to take a look at it. Once again, that period opens November 13th. And I, I think if you look at it, you will see that uh, it is the plan that offers the best benefits at the most affordable cost. It's a plan that is exists for one reason and one reason only. And that reason is to provide the best benefits we can at the best cost to letter carriers and to the members of the NALC. So we work really hard every year to keep our plan as affordable as we can, but also provide benefits that serve all of our members. You know, in a lot of ways, we're very similar in terms of we're all letter carriers. We all do the, you know, similar type of work, but we also, you know, there's a lot of diversity among our membership in terms of of our needs when it comes to health care and therefore health insurance. And we try really hard to uh, ensure that we've got benefits that cover as much as we possibly can. You know, as far as issues and health care that uh, our our members may need to receive. So we will have a very, in the very near future, an episode of the podcast that'll drop probably just prior to that open season where we'll talk in depth about the NALC health benefit plan and and health benefits in general and some about the postal reform and what's going to happen there. So you'll hear more about that. You'll see it in the postal record that you're going to receive for the month of November here in a week or two. And then you can always go to the, the NALC Health Benefit Plans website. That's NALCHBP.org. That is NALCHBP.org. And you'll get as much information as, as you want to digest is available to you there. So we're really excited about you know not just the the plan and, and the benefits we have for 2024, but this open season to give our folks that may have not yet taken advantage of the opportunity to uh, be insured and be part of the plan that is their union's plan. Give them the chance to take advantage of all that's available to them. So uh, we'll have more information about that in episode in the very near future of the podcast. But the health benefit plan seminars, kind of the kickoff of everything we do, working up to open season and. It went great. Can't say enough about the job that our people out at the plan did to get that, that together. And, and then, of course, all our health benefit representatives from the branches around the country that were there to, to learn and take that information back to their branches.
0: Yeah, you won't find a bigger supporter of the NALC health benefit plan than me. I remember when my children were born and going home and, and getting that bill and having a zero dollar bill. It was terrific, especially when you're younger and you're just trying to make your way through life. And then I had some health issues, you know, that could have been catastrophic financially, but I was protected by the health benefit plan. If you haven't looked into it, you really should look into our union's plan. It's really great. For sure. I saw on social media that we're going to have some uh, rallies coming up. Do you want to talk about those?
1: Yeah, we've got a couple more. We have so far done them in Chicago and Cincinnati and Compton, California and uh, Oakland, California just a couple of weeks ago. And and this upcoming week, if you're listening to this podcast, when it's released on Tuesday of this week, October, the, I guess that'd be the 24th. We are having one in Aurora, Colorado in the Denver area, and then on the 25th in Houston, Texas. So uh, the same is true of of these events as the previous ones we've had. We just want to uh, we get the local media out, get a lot of other people, you know, locally involved, and the idea is just to simply get the word out and raise public awareness of the issues we're experiencing as it relates to crime. and And we've started to see some progress that that I think in a lot of ways is a direct result of the efforts that we put forward as far as doing these doing these rallies. I mean, out in, in Northern California, we had the rally in Oakland, and that same week, the U.S. Attorney's Office out there had a press conference and announced 10 arrests in uh, cases where letter carriers had been robbed and, and assaulted. So, elevating the issue and, and making it a priority for all the people that are involved from the inspection service for their role of protecting us and investigating these crimes to the U.S. Attorney's Office and their role of prosecuting these crimes. I think our efforts are starting to make a make a difference. So we're going to continue to, when we have an opportunity to uh, in communities around the country to get that word out, we'll keep doing that. So I'm sure we'll talk more in future episodes after those rallies, but we're looking forward to being out in the Denver area as well as in Houston, Texas next week.
0: I uh, figure I feel that the carriers would want to know this. With you being on the road so much, does that affect the speed of negotiations?
1: Yeah, not not really. You know, there are something's always happening with negotiations, and I do travel a good bit. As do the other officers uh, of the NALC, and even our headquarters staff here to some degree, depending on what's going on. And look, our counterparts of the Postal Service, they they do a fair amount of travel, but we maintain constant communication. It's something that uh, even if we're not physically sitting in a room meeting all the time, there's still efforts being made on both sides. I've talked about on the podcast. we still have you know a number of issues that we're working on, and that work continues. So if we were at a point where us just sitting in a room until we got a contract done was was what it took to uh, finish things up, then I can promise you that's exactly what we would be doing. But as we, fulfill all the other duties that are associated with the responsibilities that various people here at NLC headquarters have. No different than, you know, those of you at the branch level that have your various responsibilities or national business agents that are out there. I can guarantee you that collective bargaining is and always will remain our number one priority. And when it comes to planning, whatever the daily activities that we have, the union, it, it stays at the very top of the list and, and we stay really just constantly engaged, you know, with our counterparts on working on the various issues and and working towards potentially reaching an agreement while, as we've talked about before, at the same time, ensuring that we're fully prepared for our interest arbitration proceedings should we end up going in that direction, which we will have likely some some news on that front here in the very near future.
0: That's great to hear. And uh, I know the carriers out there and the members love to hear that. So this week, we're going to be talking about OWCP, and we have a special guest coming. Do you want to introduce our guest?
1: Yeah, you know, OWCP is an area where, just to be blunt about it, NLC does more to represent our members than any other union, any other association of employees. We have, over the years, invested a tremendous amount into not just adding people to, you know, represent our members with OWCP, but, you know, invested in training and we have this wonderful network that's out there. We've developed and and fostered an outstanding relationship with the folks over at the Department of Labor, you know, and specifically in um, the Office of Workers' Compensation Programs of OWCP, where we, you know, basically work with them at this point in terms of them setting um, policy that within existing law they have the ability to do. So w- we've continued to invest in representing our injured workers. and And our goal is really for us to just ensure that our members who are covered by the Federal Employees' Compensation Act that are injured on the job they receive the benefits that the law entitles them to simply put that is our goal now it's a can be a very complicated process as a lot of you that are listening to this podcast if you've been injured on the job and and have filed a claim with the owcp you're aware but we have this excellent network we've got you know at least a dozen people uh, It really when you include the headquarters staff, even more than that, that this is all they do. And one of the people that plays a huge role in that is Kobe Jones, who serves as assistant to the president for workers' compensation. And Kobe works under our director of retired members, Dan Toth. And Dan has kind of oversight and responsibility for what we do representationally with WCP for our injured workers. So Kobe um, works with Dan and, and Kobe does a number of different things. Number one, He is kind of the point of contact for the Department of Labor and the folks over at OWCP. So he communicates with them frequently. I'm sure we'll get into a little bit about that and probably talk about some of the, you know, the real tangible results that we've seen as a result of that communication. Kobe also assists our regional workers' compensation assistants. We have 11 of them currently around the country. They do a number of different things. They handle claims of our members once they reach a certain point. Most initial claims are are handled at the branch level. If they get to the point of being in appeals and things like that, then our RWCAs jump in and handle that representation directly. But they also spend a significant amount of time doing training and working with, with the people At the branch level, that have taken on the responsibility to represent NALC members that are injured on the job, and when it comes to their claims for OWCP. And Kobe is, as you'll hear, he is one of the most intelligent people that you'll ever be around. If you have the opportunity to meet him or talk to him, and he's someone that cares very, very deeply about our injured workers, and you know, really couldn't imagine anyone better to have on the podcast to talk about. All things that our union does when it comes to representing our workers. And just to add a little bit of perspective um, before we get into the conversation with Kobe. So, there's a lot of people that are covered under the Federal Employees Compensation Act. Almost all civilian federal employees are pretty much all are. NALC members, city carriers make up nearly a third of all injured workers. So, you know, we are a, a significant amount of the claims that OWCP processes and our involvement and in the work that we do is really reflective of that. So it's exciting to have Kobe on. He's a good friend, someone that I've worked with for a long time, a lot of different things. And uh, just so happens OWCP is his, you know, really his first love and uh, something he's, he's contributed greatly to the success we've had in representing our members. So it's great to have, uh, have Kobe on the
0: podcast. And let's just tell our listeners, if uh, if you're going to share any of our episodes, this is the one to share with your brothers and sisters and friends on the workroom floor. And even the carriers you don't like, share it with them too, uh, because <laughs> OWTP is so important for our carriers. Make sure you share this episode with them.
1: Here's my conversation with NELC Assistant to the President for Workers' Compensation, Kobe Jones. Hey, Kobe, thanks for taking some time to join us. Glad to be here, Brian. So before we get into uh, the main topic of the day, which is OWCP and the things that the law entitles our members to and what NELC does to represent them, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? You've got quite an extensive history of working for letter carriers and in particular as it relates to OWCP. So just tell us a little bit about your past and work up to your current role.
2: Okay. I, I'm a retired city letter carrier. I'm a member of Branch 79 Seattle, Washington i had a long time parking route in Seattle. I became a shop steward in 2000 and did a lot of union representation. And I was the formal A representative in Seattle for a number of years. Soon after becoming a shop steward, I became my branch's OWCP go-to person, sort of by default. I actually read the regulations and laws and became sort of the go-to person in my branch for that. I was appointed RAA by President Young in 2009 and served as assistant to the president for injury compensation under President Rolando in 2011 and 2012. And then I returned to being an RAA, and then I was appointed by President Rolando as an RWCA in 2015, and I'm currently assistant to the president, Brian Renfro, for injury compensation.
1: Yeah, so let's uh let's get right into it. We uh want to talk a lot about OWCP, but to start for our listeners out there that you know may not uh, or may not have any familiarity at all with OWCP and the workers' compensation benefits that by law uh city carriers are entitled to. Let's just start with what is OWCP? What what do those letters mean? Uh Office of Workers' Compensation
2: Programs. It's a department within the Department of Labor. Mhm and they administer the FICA, the Federal Employees Compensation Act. The FICA has been around since 1916, and we currently are still governed by the FICA. It was most recently amended in 2006. And the FICA designates the Department of Labor to write the implementing regulations to enforce the provisions of the FICA, and OWCP is the federal agency that handles all federal injury compensation.
1: Gotcha. So you mentioned the FECA, the law that that entitles us to those benefits, Um, and OWCP is responsible for the implementation of that law. But who is covered under that law? We know city letter care certainly are, but maybe just for a little more context, what workers are covered?
2: Most civilian federal employees are covered by the FICA. Park rangers for Department of the Interior, congressional aides, clerical workers in, in offices all over Washington, D.C. and in federal buildings around the country, Department of Agriculture, the FBI, FBI agents, if they're injured in the line of duty, are covered by the FICA. And actually, all civilian employees who work for the Department of Defense, who are employed by the Department of Defense, are also covered by FICA. All
1: right. So we're talking about on-the-job injuries here. And as far as the benefits go that are, are provided in the law, what injuries are covered for federal employees and specifically city letter carriers? What types of injuries? Any injury
2: that our work has either contributed to or caused is covered by the FICA. And an important principle to understand is that Department of Labor, OWCP, does not apportion causality. And so even if our work has contributed in very small part to an injury, it's still compensable under the law.
1: Gotcha. So in the beginning, you talked about um, your various uh, responsibilities and roles over the years, a lot of that, that time, the time that you've spent in representation of letter carriers to just really ensure that they receive what the law entitles them to if they're injured on the job. Just for our listeners, to let them know, OWCP representation is something that we as a union Invest in and provide probably more so than any other union, and and probably by far, and probably certainly more so than you know for any other group of federal employees. And really, we've done that for a long time. But during President Orlando's time as president, he really expanded the network that we have for for that representation that we provide. So, um, why don't you just talk to us a little bit about that network? We've got regional workers' comp assistance out there, got a resident officer here that oversees. What we do, workers' compensation, representation-wise. So just fill us in a little bit, if you would, on kind of how our structure as it relates to representation in OWCP.
2: Yeah, let me start by saying that just like you can judge a free, prosperous, and democratic society by the standards of freedom, prosperity, and democracy that its weakest members enjoy, we can judge an organization by how it deals with its weakest members. Mm -hmm. And in our case, those would be our injured people. And NALC has devoted considerably more resources to helping our injured members than any other federal union or federal employee organization, by far. We have my position, the Assistant to the President for Compensation. We also have, in the field, we have 11 RWCAs, Regional Workers' Compensation Assistants, who are there to assist our members with their claims. Now, initially, we want our members to go to their local branch of the union for assistance. And then if they have issues there, then they should reach out to their business agent's office. And for kind of straightforward sorts of issues, those should be handled by, by the business agent's office and the regional administrative assistants there. But when, we, when it comes to appeals or more complex or convoluted cases, or if there are problems, administrative problems dealing with OWCP itself, then they should be referred by their business agent's office to an RWCA, a regional workers' compensation assistant, who have received considerable training and have, have a lot of experience handling injury compensation claims Our our RWCAs often have very good relationships with claims examiners. Mm -hmm. A lot of our RWCAs are on a first-name basis with many claims examiners. And so the union also dedicates lots of resources to training. Mm -hmm. We train OWCP in every region. In fact, we provide advanced training, both at the regional and at the national level. Multi-day trainings, in fact. And so we have lots of resources for local branches and local members to avail themselves of.
1: Yeah, we we continue to invest in the network, not not just in adding people like the RWCAs, but also and certainly assisting our members directly, you know, that that are injured on the job with their claims, but also as you mentioned, investing in training to get representatives at the branch level as proficient as as we possibly can. So that's something that uh, has ramped up over the years, and uh, I, I can guarantee you that that will continue well into the future. So I think what would probably be useful to a lot of our listeners, Kobe, is if we just kind of walk through, you know, if someone gets hurt on the job, just step by step what the letter carrier would need to know. If they're injured, we want this to be, in terms of advice, as practical as we possibly can. So let's do that. And and let's say one of our members is hurt on the job and you know, what's the very first thing that that we would advise them to do if they suffer any type of on the job injury?
2: Probably the first thing they should do is report it to their supervisor right away.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And there are lots of good reasons for that. One is supervisors should actually advise them that they should file a claim. Unfortunately, postal supervisors are no longer trained to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, up until about 2006, every delivery unit in the post office had a trained supervisor called the Control Point, and they had received several days of training on how to you know, handle the initial phases of filing injury compensation claim. For whatever reason, right around the mid-2000s, the post office kind of stopped training supervisors at the delivery unit level in how to handle injury compensation claims. But you should still report it immediately to your supervisor. It's always in your interest to do that. And it's also always in your interest to file a claim. Mm-hmm. And if the claim doesn't come to much, well, then it doesn't come to much. Right. But, but
1: one thing's for sure, you'll never receive the benefits if you don't file a claim. You don't file a claim.
2: <laughs> and there we, we're seeing around the country now where the post office has homemade forms, which we are in the process of filing grievances on saying, at this time, I choose not to file a claim. Mm-hmm. You should always choose to file a claim because you never mm-hmm. know. I mean, it could be some inconsequential thing that you can work your way through in a few days. And if you file a claim, you just work your way through it in a few days and you're done. Mm-hmm. But if you don't file a claim and it persists, the more you delay filing a claim, the harder it is to get your claim accepted.
1: Yeah. And this is probably a good point for us to to talk about. Some injuries are, are very, uh, let's say, cut and dry, so to speak. For mm-hmm. example, if an employee slips and falls and injures himself on the workroom floor, that's that's very straightforward. There are also you know, occupational diseases that that result. So why don't you kind of tell us the difference between, and you can even get into which form you would use. I think that'd be an important distinction for our okay. listeners to understand.
2: Okay. First, every letter carrier should register an e-comp, even if they're mm-hmm. not injured, just so that they have an e-comp account ready to go in case they do need to file a claim. And we encourage people to file every claim electronically now. When they first rolled out ECOMP. We were a little skeptical about whether or not it would work, but it works very, very well. It works much better than filing claims on paper. Paper claims, supervisors lose. They stick them into the desk drawer and forget about them. They delay forwarding them. So we encourage everyone to have an account in Ecomp, And if they do get injured, they can file a claim right within Ecomp, And they don't have to do that with the supervisor hovering over their shoulder. You can do it right on your phone. You can file a claim on your mobile phone if you need to. through
1: let before we move forward, I just want to um, reemphasize this because this is something that for every letter carrier that's listening, even if you've never suffered an on-the-job injury, you should register in e-comp. It's very simple to do, but if you need assistance doing that, of course, you could always call your national business agents office. Sure,
2: and I've registered in e-comp even though I'm retired just so I could learn how to do it so I can assist people <laughs> with doing it, right? Retired people can register an econ, because actually retired people can file an initial claim as long as they're within three years of the date of last exposure to mm-hmm. the work that contributed to their injuries, which is a, a fact many of our members don't know. So the two main types of injury are, as you pointed out, traumatic injuries and occupational disease. To file for a traumatic injury, you use a form called a CA-1. The definition of a traumatic injury is an injury that occurs within a single tour of duty, and it has to be caused by either an event or series of events that occur within a single tour of duty. And I always teach people that if you file a CA-1, you want to be able to point at something. To be successful in a traumatic injury claim, you have to be able to point to something that happened, right? And so, for example, I mean, some some things are very obvious. You're in a vehicle accident. You can point to that. Right. You fall down some stairs, you know, on the ice. You can point to that. You lift a parcel and you tweak your back. You can point to that. You're walking on icy sidewalks and your knees are sliding back and forth all day and you developed some issue in your knee. You can point to that. Mm-hmm. If you can't point to something, even though... Say, say you're just walking across the workroom floor and all of a sudden your foot starts hurting with excruciating pain, but you can't point at anything. You didn't step in a hole. You are just walking on a flat surface. In general, those cases, even though it occurred in a single day, would be better handled as an occupational disease case. So the CA1 is for traumatic disease. Let's talk about occupational disease. Mm-hmm. Occupational disease, you use the form CA2 to file for occupational disease. These are kind of repetitive injuries that occur over time. And as letter carriers, we are engaged in constant, strenuous, repetitive activity. You know, yeah, I mean, our arms are constant. Our right arm, for example, is constantly dancing in motion all day long. Mm-hmm. We walk. We jump in and out of trucks. We climb up and down stairs. We do park and loop. We walk miles every day. Often in our jobs, um, we go up and down stairs. We lift heavy parcels all day long. For injuries that uh, that occur over time, those are occupational diseases. They can include arthritis, um, strains, rotator cuff tears, meniscal tears, those can either be occupational disease or traumatic injuries, depending just on the nature of the work event. Mm -hmm. But but, uh, we see meniscal tears and rotator cuff tears, for example, both as traumatic injuries and as occupational disease cases. Uh, Arthritis is always going to be an occupational disease case, um, Mm -hmm. unless it's a temporary aggravation of the arthritis. that if you're filing because your work over the years has made your arthritis worse than it would otherwise be, that is an occupational disease case. Certain stress, emotional stress cases are occupational disease also. Although they can also be traumatic, especially with the rash of recent assaults that we see around the country. We have lots of people who suffer emotional stress and PTSD as a result of those assaults and attacks. Dog attacks can also result in traumatic emotional distress. So 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 anyhow, you would file a CA2 for occupational disease. There's another form called the CA2A for recurrences. And in general, we advise our people never to file a CA2A for recurrence. And the reason is, is because recurrence has a definition under the law that isn't commonsensical. It's not what you would think is a recurrence. It's not what your doctor would think is a recurrence. Recurrence has a very technical legal definition for OWCP purposes. A recurrence is a return of disability due to either a spontaneous reappearance of an accepted previous injury with no new exposure to the work environment. And because of the work we do as letter carriers, that's extremely rare, because as soon as we return to work, if we're doing any sort of letter carrier duty, we're almost instantly immersed in renewed exposure to the work that caused our original injury. And so it's very rare that letter carriers will meet that definition of recurrence. It's somewhat common in other federal employment, But for letter carriers, it's very, very rare. The second definition of recurrence is what we call a consequential injury. And that is that, you know, one injury, because you're favoring that body part, right, leads to another body part developing an injury. For example, if you have, say, arthritis in your right knee, that's your accepted condition. And because you're limping, you develop problems in your other knee. That would be a consequential injury. We advise people only to file CA2A for recurrence for consequential injury if they have not returned to work. If you've returned to work, you always want to probably file either a new CA1 or a new CA2. And and your doctor can explain that there is a consequential component of the new injury, but they can also, if you file a CA1 or a CA2, they can address other issues other than just the pre-existing injury. Whereas if you file for recurrence, you're limiting the playing field with which your doctor can rely upon to explain your injury. So it's much easier for a doctor to say, that your left knee developed problems because of your right knee accepted injury, plus all the work you've been doing for the last 30 years, going up and down stairs, squatting, lifting, standing. That's a much easier thing for a doctor to explain than confining your doctor to explaining how your right knee led to the left knee injury. And the third definition of recurrence is withdrawal of limited duty work, even if there's been no change in your condition. And we would advise any letter carrier who has limited-duty work withdrawn to file a CA-2A for recurrence. That's the one situation where we would advise filing a CA-2A for recurrence.
1: Gotcha. So, let's talk about forms for a minute. You mentioned a CA-1 that we would file for a traumatic injury, CA-2 for occupational disease, a CA-2A for a recurrence, even though it's very limited use of that in terms of the way we advise people, Uh, but there are other forms that our listeners might commonly hear discussed, I think this might be a good time for us to get those out of the way. For example, CA-16, CA-17, CA-20, those are, are, if they read any of our guides or 10 trainings and things like that, they'll probably hear those forms referenced. So why don't you just tell us what each of those are and the purpose that they serve? Okay,
2: the CA-16 is an authorization form for medical treatment. It has to be issued by the employing agency and signed by the employing agency. The CA-16 guarantees payment to the medical provider that you take it to. It guarantees payment for 60 days. And it guarantees payment regardless of whether your claim is accepted or not. So it's a hugely important document. The post office resists issuing CA-16s. But the law says that they must issue it within four hours of finding out about the injury. They have to issue it before you even file a claim. If they find out about an injury for which you need medical care and then and then the law goes on to say that, you know, if they don't do it within four hours, they should do it by the very next day. Or if they verbally authorize treatment, they have to issue it within 48 hours. Now, unfortunately, the law also says that after seven days, they have no obligation. to issue the CA16. So it's kind of funny language. It says you must do this, but if you wait and delay 7 days then you don't have to anymore. And it's hugely important that we enforce the issuing of CA16s through the grievance process and we should file grievances immediately and hold their feet to the fire on that. And we should probably do it immediately, you know, before that 7-day period expires. Sure. The CA-16 has become even more important in recent years because we have so many CCAs now. And unlike career carriers who have feeb benefits, federal employee health benefits, the CCAs don't have the FEB you know and often either they have no medical insurance or inadequate medical insurance and so if if a career carrier gets injured on the job and their claim is denied they can always have their insurance carrier cover the cost of the injury while they either work on an appeal or if they decide not to appeal they can have their federal insurer cover the cost of the injury but an uninsured cca or a CCA with inadequate medical insurance. If they get injured on the job and their claim is initially denied, they're stuck with all the medical bills. And so an emergency room visit can easily run five to $10,000. And so the CA 16 becomes even more important in this day because of our CCAs, because, mm-hmm. because if the post office issues the CA 16, it guarantees medical payment for 60 days, regardless of whether or not the claim is accepted. So it's a hugely important document. And as union activists, we need to hold the agency responsible for issuing the CA-16. For sure. So once you've been injured, the CA-17 is just a form that indicates what you can and can't do at work and it's broken down by all kinds of different categories like how long can you reach above your shoulder how long can you stand how long can you walk how long can you kneel climb and that's an important document that you will provide to the postal service because that's the document the postal service will use to meet their obligation to provide limited duty work for injured people the ca20 is a physician's medical report and we recently The OWCP in August of this year issued a redesigned CA-20 and we had a lot of input on the design of the form. And they actually followed almost every suggestion we had. It's a great new form, especially for the initial medical report and the claim. We believe that if a doctor comprehensively and conscientiously fills out a CA-20 in a traumatic injury case. Most of those cases will be accepted just based on the information on a CA-20. An occupational disease case, uh, CA-2 case, you'll probably need additional medical beyond a CA-20, but they should still fill out the CA-20 in every initial case. And some traumatic injury cases, if there's a history of pre-existing injury involved or pre-existing degenerative condition, they may require more medical information beyond the CA-20. But for most straightforward traumatic injury CA-1 cases, we are expecting that the CA-20 comprehensively and completely filled out CA-20 should be sufficient to get that traumatic injury accepted.
1: Yeah, and you—you you, we'll talk a little bit more in a few minutes about our relationship with the folks over at the Department of Labor and OWCP. The new CA twenty is very much evidence of us having a, a very productive working relationship with them. Okay, let's go back to—I get injured, and uh, I think a simple question is: we, we talked about everyone should register an E comp, and should we? Fi- and we should file a claim. Uh, a lot of times medical attention is necessary, but I think a real simple question is, should I file a claim first or go to the doctor first? My answer is it depends.
2: Right. <laughs> in a traumatic injury case, if you need immediate medical attention, you should go to the doctor sure. first every time. I'm mean, In an occupational disease case, it depends also there. If, you, yeah, if your knee is really bothering you and it gets sore over time, you can file a CA2 initially and then get the required medical evidence. But you can also go to your doctor first to get a clear diagnosis to find out what's going on, and then once you get a diagnosis, then file the claim. But in any traumatic injury case where you need immediate medical attention, get the medical attention first.
1: Yeah, never delay necessary medical attention. Don't let the thought of of filing your claim delay you getting that necessary attention. All right, speaking of doctors, there, I think, sometimes is confusion. The Postal Service at times will send people to doctors for things like fitness for duty examinations. But if I'm injured on the job and you know I either have filed or intend to file a claim, what doctor can I go to? I think is a question that a lot of our members would have. You go to the doctor that you
2: choose. Right. Under the law, you get to choose your treating physician. The post office can't determine that. That being said, the post office has a right to send you to one of their doctors for an examination. And you would have to consent to that. So, if the post office says, We want you to go to this urgent care and get looked at, you can go to that urgent care and have that doctor examine you. But you also want to insist, I want my doctor to treat me in this case, because you have a right to elect a doctor that treats you. And one of the problems with the post office sending people to urgent care is that which is what they tend to do these days. One of the problems with that is that most urgent care clinics, you're not examined by a doctor. You're usually examined by a nurse practitioner or a physician's assistant. And they'll write an initial medical report on on your injury. But OWCP's current regulations require any medical evidence to be signed by a doctor. So anything written by a PAC or a nurse practitioner is is not counted as medical evidence by OWCP. And so that's a real problem. You know, you sprain your ankle, the post office says, well, go see this urgent care. And then you're seen by a nurse practitioner there. And nurse practitioners are incredibly competent, mm-hmm. especially on injuries like that. But the report that they write won't be enough to get your claim accepted. And it's almost like the post office is undermining your ability to get a claim accepted when they send you to urgent care. I personally don't think it's intentional. It's just how urgent cares are these days, but that's the result. You know, you don't have the medical evidence you need.
1: Yeah, and it's probably a little bit of a sidebar here, but uh, worth mentioning. We do have legislation in the House, H.R. 618, and the Senate companion bill is uh, S-131. I think the name of the bill is improving access to workers' compensation for injured federal workers. Um, It essentially would Allow nurse practitioners, physicians' assistants to, you know, treat injured employees in the circumstance you describe, requiring a physician themselves to sign the report. It would just expand access by allowing them to treat.
2: And that's a change I think almost all the parties want to
1: have happen. It is uh,
2: OWCP yeah. wants that they to do. happen. Mm-hmm. We want that to happen also especially in straightforward traumatic injury cases. There's no reason why they shouldn't accept something from a nurse practitioner or a physician's assistant. And it also reflects how the medical care system works now. Sure. And also brings it in line with the FMLA definition of medical provider also.
1: Which would just make common sense. It would. So let's get into the the claim process a little bit. We talked about e-comp and how that has been quite an improvement over the days of paper claims. But one thing that is a little bit different, I guess, when we do it electronically through e-comp is communication in terms of the status of the claim. So what should an employee, like how do they keep up with their claim in ECOMP as it progresses through the process? If you would talk about that and, and mostly including you know, what the employee that filed the claim, what it is they need to do or the things they need to continuously check on or, or what do they need to look okay.
2: for? Okay. Yeah. e is a very useful tool for the injured worker. They can check the status of their claim, whether or not it's been accepted. Once they filed their claim, they can check on whether or not the post office has properly completed its portion of the initial claim form. Every CA-1, CA-2, and CA-2A has a section that has to be, be completed by the postal service. And you can see if they've responded properly within e-comp, right? The law hasn't changed for the post office to complete their portion of the claim. They have to do it within 10 business days uh, you know, on an initial claim filing. So if you file a claim, the post office has 10 business days to complete their portion and forward it to OWCP. And if you file an e-comp, OWCP knows you filed the claim. That's a useful thing. If you file on paper and they stick it in a drawer somewhere, OWCP has no knowledge of right. that. And so you can check your claim status, whether you know whether or not the post office is forwarding and, and responding in a timely manner. And if they don't, of course, that would be a grievance. Uh, you would go see your shop steward and file a grievance that the post office has not responded within the required ten business days for the filing of those claim forms. You can also in eCom see what your accepted conditions are. You can track. The status of CA7s that you file. Uh, CA7 is a form for when you claim wage loss compensation. You can track the status of your CA7s within Ecomp. You can also check your compensation payment history. If you are receiving wage loss compensation, you can go into Ecomp and you can even see checks or deposits that are pending to be deposited. Those will show up in Ecomp under compensation history. So if you're wondering, well, when am I going to get paid for this? You can go right into Ecomp and check that out. You can also check the status of your bills, whether or not your bills are being covered. You can check the status of requests for medical procedures and you can check, you know, whether or not those procedures have been authorized or not. You can track all of that information within eComp. If you go to the eComp website at OWCP's eComp website, they have a number of tutorial videos that you can watch, which explain to you how to do all of this stuff like how to track my compensation, how to see my payment history, how to register with Ecom. There's a tutorial on how to register with Ecom, how to file a claim within Ecom, how to do a CA7, in eComp. And so you can go right to the eComp website and watch these tutorials, which kind of instruct you how to use eComp. And I would watch every video. If I was injured, I would watch every video just so I would know how to maneuver and navigate through the eComp website, because there is so much useful information there. And it's also a way to kind of prevent delays in the processing and handling of your claim.
1: Yeah, it's really easy to find, but the the website is eComp.dol.gov. It is. That's E-C-O-M-P dot, dot gov. Okay, when someone files a claim and, you know, different steps of the process take place, maybe a little bit different than what our members might be used to in the grievance procedure, for example, where, you know, the the branch, the shop steward, their, their formal A rep, at whatever step in the process would keep up with the grievance file. It's generally a good idea for our members to keep their own record of any correspondence they receive, electronic or otherwise. And that can often be something that's useful in the future, right?
2: Yeah, you should keep a folder. And if you have a computer, you can even be an electronic folder, right, mm-hmm. to keep track of every aspect of your claim. To stay on top of your claim, I think claimants need to understand that any progress in your claim, especially in the initial acceptance, the employee themselves has a burden proof to establish the elements of their claim, right? And there are five basic elements to every claim. To get a claim initially accepted, you have to timely file a claim. The time limits for filing a CA-1 for traumatic injury is three years from the traumatic event. There is an exception to that, and that is if you can demonstrate that the federal employer, in our case, the Postal Service, knew in writing of the injury within 30 days of it occurring, then there is no time limit. For filing a claim for traumatic injury and those documents can include like osha reports accident reports discipline for having an accident that's a pretty good (laughs) written document to establish that you were injured and that the post office knew about that within 30 days but in general the time limit is three years for occupational disease cases it's three years from the last exposure to the work that contributed to your occupational disease And you can file claims after you retire, after you leave the Postal Service, as long as you file timely. Even if you you move on to other employment or retire, you can always file a claim as long as you do it within those uh, prescribed time limits. And so that's basic element number one. The second basic element of a claim is that you have to be a civilian employee of the federal government. Every letter carrier, every CCA, every TE, every casual Every letter carrier is a civilian employee of the federal government. I've never seen a claim denied based on the second basic element of the claim. The third basic element is called fact of injury. And there are two components to fact of injury. There's what they call the factual component, and then there's the medical component. The factual component is just an assertion from the injured worker that this is based on some specific Thing or things that happened at work, either in the course of one tour of duty or over time. That's the factual component. And they will take the injured worker's assertion at face value, absent evidence that contradicts that. So you, your injury doesn't have to be witnessed by anyone. The medical component is simply a medical diagnosis based on objective clinical findings. Letter carriers should be aware that OWCP does not accept pain as a diagnosis. And objective clinical findings can be anything from a physical exam to visual observation to MRIs. If you have COVID, it would be a test result. Uh, MRIs, x-rays, all those things would constitute objective clinical findings for purposes of establishing the medical component of fact of injury. The fourth component is performance of duty. And performance of duty can be very convoluted. And so I won't go into a lot of detail there. It's never a factor in an occupational disease case. It only crops up as an issue in traumatic injury cases. And essentially, performance of duty in a nutshell is you should be doing what you should be doing at a time you should be doing it where you should be doing it. If all those things are true, then you've met performance of duty. And then the fifth basic element of a case that has to be established is the causal explanation. And the causal explanation is a causal explanation provided by the medical provider, by a doctor currently, that explains, it, it basically connects the two components of fact of injury, the factual component and the medical component. And it's the doctor explaining how the workplace factors have contributed to the diagnosed injury. And factual component can be very straightforward in a, in a traumatic injury case, almost a no-brainer. In fact, OWCP, if it's a very straightforward traumatic injury, don't require much as a causal explanation. You know, the ladder carrier broke their leg when it struck the step falling down, right? It's very straightforward. In occupational disease cases, they want significantly more detail for the causal explanation. They want a biomechanical explanation as to how the workplace factors over time contributed or cause the diagnosed condition. And let me point out here that all these things, it's the letter carrier's burden of proof, the injured worker's Mm -hmm. burden of proof to establish. It's not the post office's burden of proof. It's not the doctor's burden of proof. It's not your union representative's burden of proof. It's always going to be your burden of proof as the injured worker, to make sure all five basic elements are established.
1: Yep. And we will certainly assist. We will indeed. That's, <laughs> That's what, what we do. do. But you know, ultimately, it is a responsibility of the employee. Okay. So a couple of things that are just really foundational elements of the Federal Employees' Compensation Act. One is that you know if I'm injured on the job, that my medical care as it relates to that injury is paid for, and and the other is wage loss compensation. If as a result of that injury I'm unable to work or, or lose wages, then I'm compensated. So let's talk about those two things, and and let's start with our medical bills. So if you go to the doctor, you know there's always medical bills associated to that. Just mechanically, how are those bills paid? How does that work? Okay. Well, if you have
2: a CA-16, the post office guarantees payment of the medical bills for up to 60 days. But every medical provider should register with e-comp. Medical providers also register within e-comp, right? It's a fairly straightforward procedure. And Almost every medical office has an insurance specialist there for billing, mm-hmm. and, and the process is somewhat similar to a medical provider registering with Blue Cross Blue Shield or the NALC Health Plan or uh, whatever medical insurer there is. It's, it's a very similar process, and there are actually tutorials on the e website mm-hmm. for the medical provider also to you know, kind of learn how to you know, kind of register with e so that they can get paid. And, and once your claim is accepted, uh, with your acceptance letter, there's a whole section of the acceptance letter that says for your medical provider. And I would I advise the injured letter here is take your acceptance letter to your medical provider, Keep a copy for yourself, but get a give a copy of the acceptance letter to your medical provider because it not only tells them what the conditions are that have been accepted, it also explains to them how to register with eCOMP and how to get paid.
1: All right. So if I'm injured or, or letter care out there gets injured on the job and, and I'm out of work, maybe more importantly than how do my medical bills get paid, how do I get paid? Okay. If you suffer a traumatic injury, then
2: you're entitled to what's called continuation of pay. We call that COP. Mm-hmm. Um, COP begins, you're entitled to up to 45 days of COP and any period of COP has to begin within 45 days of the date of injury. And those are two separate 45s. Mm
1: -hmm. It can (laughs) be very confusing. It can be
2: confusing. And here are the rules uh, for COP. Unfortunately, due to the Postal Reform Act of 2006, all postal employees have a three-day waiting period before they can begin continuation of pay. Those are calendar days, not work days. And it doesn't matter if it's a day off, a Sunday, a holiday. Every day on the calendar counts as a day of COP, and so if you get injured, they start counting the COP days the day after the date of injury, unless your injury is pre-tour, then they would count it as the date of injury. But most, it's very rare we find pre-tour injuries, but th- those do happen. So starting the day after the injury, the first three days, you're not entitled to COP. It doesn't matter if it's, you know, if you get injured on a Thursday and you're a career carrier and it's your long weekend, then your three days of COP would be Friday, Saturday, Sunday, which when you're not even working at all anyhow, you would begin receiving continuation of pay on Monday. So they are calendar days. Now, if you continue with COP more than 14 days, you can request that they retroactively restore the first three days to you. But you can only do that if you have COP going on beyond 14 days. You're entitled to up to 45 days of COP and you have to begin any period of COP within 45 days of the date of injury. But say you return to work right after your injury and and you work for like 44 days and you're doing limited duty and then they say we're not giving you this work anymore. You can apply for COP on day 45, and and if you haven't used any of the 45-day entitlement, you can be entitled to up to 45 days past the end of the 45-day period, Mm -hmm. as long as it's uninterrupted. Because the rule is you have to begin any period of COP within 45 days of the date of injury. I hope that clarifies that. That sometimes can be confusing. Excellent. Now, once you go past 45 days in a traumatic injury case, or... If you file a CA-2 for uh, occupational disease, then you have to apply for wage loss compensation. And there is no COP for an occupational disease case. Your only way to get uh, lost wages is through wage loss compensation. And to claim wage loss compensation, you need to provide medical evidence of disability, and then you file a CA-7 form. And, And there's a A misunderstanding among injured workers that once their claim is accepted, they'll automatically get wage loss compensation. Every case, when it's accepted, is always for medical benefits only. Even if you're in a serious accident, you're paralyzed you still have to apply for wage loss compensation and provide medical evidence of disability. And it requires somewhat specialized medical evidence. And we discussed this actually, the medical evidence you would need to claim wage loss compensation is discussed in the July 2023 postal record injury compensation column, And so I would refer you to that column to understand the medical evidence required for wage loss compensation.
1: Yeah, that, that's a, a really good point for the listeners. You know, you can always go to the website and look through your past postal records. And Kobe writes a, a column in there that, that there's often lots of information that uh, that can be useful. Let, let me add one more point sure. on
2: COP. To qualify for COP, you have to file a CA-1 within 30 days of the date of entry. If you file a CA-1 outside the 30 days, you would no longer be entitled to COP, but you would be entitled to wage loss compensation for the entire period through filing a CA-7. Gotcha.
1: Okay. Kobe, just a couple more things and we'll get you out of here. Let's uh, talk about something that is normally a very pleasant surprise to many of our members that have been injured uh, on the job at some point during their career, and that is schedule awards. We have, over the years, dedicated a lot of resources in terms of our RWCAs and others out there to assisting our members that are entitled to schedule awards. So why don't you tell us what they are and, you know, what someone that could potentially be eligible for one, what we would advise them to do?
2: Well, the law, the Federal Employees' Compensation Act itself, has what's called a schedule of body members. And if you suffer permanent impairment to a body member that's listed on the schedule, Then you are entitled to an additional benefit called a schedule award. And and not every injury is entitled to a schedule award. Emotional conditions, there is no schedule award for that. Brain injuries, there is no schedule award for that. Spinal injuries, there is no schedule award for a spinal injury unless the spinal injury affects your extremities. And then you can get the impairment due to the spinal injury that's affecting. Your extremities, you can get a schedule award for that. For example, any lumbar or sacral vertebra injury to the, you know, to the spine, right, often can result in um, nerve conditions in your leg, like sciatica or radiculopathy, and those are rateable, and there is a schedule award for those. And and cervical injuries in the neck region of the spine often lead to nerve impairment issues in the upper extremities, in your arms and shoulder, and there are schedule awards for those. Types of impairments. But in general, every other injury has to be something listed within the schedule your arms, your legs, your toes, your fingers, your nose, your tongue, your vision, your hearing. And the impairments are evaluated according to the AMA Guides to the Evaluation of Permanent Impairments, sixth edition. And so if you want to get a schedule award, uh, first of all, you have to have an accepted case. Second, you have to have a permanent impairment to one of the members listed, one of the body parts listed in the schedule. Then your doctor would need to determine that you're at what they call MMI, maximum medical improvement. And and then they do the rating according to the AMA Guides, sixth edition. And almost any conceivable condition will show up in the AMA Guides. A lot of states require AMA Guides, fifth and even fourth edition impairment ratings, but OWCP requires the most recent edition, which is the sixth edition. They can be quite large. Each Mm -hmm. body part is worth a certain number of weeks. Uh, For example, your your arms are worth 312 weeks each of compensation. Your legs are 288 weeks. And how they calculate a schedule award is they take the percentage impairment and multiply it by the number of weeks of pay that body part is worth, and that would be your schedule award. For example, if you have a a knee replacement, according to the AMA guides, the lowest percentage impairment possible for a knee replacement is 21%. And so, if you have a knee replacement, even with perfect results, that's going to be at least a 21% impairment. And often they go much, much higher. And a 21% impairment of the knee. If you do the math, you know, because your uh, leg is worth 288 weeks, it's over 60 weeks of pay, more than a year's pay for a perfect result knee replacement. And that's tax-free money for our members. And and OWCP will not tell you about your entitlement to a scheduled award, nor will the Postal Service. (laughs) That's why we're telling you here.
1: Yeah. And it's something, if you go and, and Google OWCP schedule awards, you will see ads from all sorts of attorneys. There's, a, there's a lot of attorneys out there that assist people. And many of them, of course, are very good at, at what they do, but they also take a percentage of your schedule award. And one of the things that our network within an ELC does is assist our members that are entitled to schedule awards and do not take a percentage of your award. And, and we firmly believe that we have the ability to provide just the highest level assistance as anyone, attorneys included. So um, if you believe you may be entitled to one, we certainly encourage you to reach out to your National Business Agent's office and ask for some help and we'll get you connected with the right person.
2: And all of our regional workers' compensation assistants have been sent to schedule award training put on by the American Board of Independent Medical Examiners. It's a three-day course. And all our RWCA's have gone to that training and have passed their exam even yep. on how to do schedule awards. So we're highly capable when it comes to schedule awards. For sure.
1: Okay. Um, last thing, I, I just want to, I think it would be interesting to our listeners to hear a little bit about the change or evolution we've seen over the years in our NALC's relationship with uh, here in Washington, D.C., that our physical neighbors, the Department of Labor is really right next door to our headquarters building. But over the years, we have developed an excellent working relationship um, with not just the Department of Labor in general, but with the folks that work in OWCP over there. And Kobe, I know you've got an interesting perspective you know, going back in time a little bit to when that relationship was, let's just say, maybe frosty at best to yeah. what it's evolved into today. So, I mean, maybe if you want to talk a little bit about the history, but um sure. the, the fact that letter carriers really have uh, not just a seat at the table, but a, a very influential voice in what happens with the benefits that the law entitles us to and what the processes that are involved in getting those approved kind of what our our role is in that
2: sure this is my second stint as assistant to the president for compensation during my first tenure as assistant to the president I would write monthly letters to the director of OWCP requesting a meeting. And it took months and months to even get a single meeting with them. Mm-hmm. And at that meeting, it did not go well. <laughs> mm-hmm. It did not go well um, for us at all. And th- we were given the cold shoulder during the meeting itself. Um, and so that was my initial encounter with OWCP. But at this point in time, we have a very good working relationship with OWCP. We meet. Every several months with the director of the federal component of OWCP and his staff, we have meetings every few months with them. We get to set the agenda and they respond to every item in our agenda. They've made some significant changes based on our suggestions. Sometimes they tell us, well, you know, our our technical capabilities won't let us do this or that or the other thing. But they're very responsive to us. They're very conscientious now. We can reach out to them to resolve problems before they become issues. We have a very, very good working relationship. They let us participate, for example, in the creation of this new CA-20. That would have been unheard of 10 years ago. We would have been shut out completely from that process. We have a very, very good working relationship with them now. That being said, it doesn't lessen the fact that being an injured worker is still can be very frustrating and it can seem very complicated to the injured worker, even though we
1: do have a much better relationship. Yeah. And and that, that's a, I think a good point for us to end on just to reemphasize to our listeners out there that those that are members of NALC and, and we only assist members of NALC um, when it comes to their WCP claims, but we've invested in this network over the years. We've got 11 RWCAs that are out there. As we mentioned earlier, we've also continue to invest in training at the branch level for our representatives there. Here in D.C., all that falls under the oversight of your Director of Retired Members, Dan Toth, who does a great job in coordinating them. And and Kobe, in his position as assistant to the President for Workers' Compensation, was very involved in that coordination, as well as working directly with the folks over at OWCP. And we are you know, excited, very pleased with the progress that we've made in terms of the representation that we're able to, to provide. But we're also excited about continuing to grow there and, you know, just ensure that really the most vulnerable of our members are the people that have gotten hurt doing their jobs and providing in the highest quality representation will, will remain a priority for us. So, well, Kobe, we appreciate you taking some time. I know this was probably very enlightening to a lot of our listeners and. Maybe we'll have you back sometime here in the future when maybe we'll have some more good news that comes as a result of of that partnership we have with our neighbors. Well, I'm very happy to have participated today. Great. Thanks. Thanks.
0: That's going to end the show for this week. As always, I want to thank you for your time. And I just want to thank all our listeners. Thank you for listening to this episode of You Are the Current Resident. Please subscribe to the podcast uh, so that you don't miss an episode. And please share the podcast with our NALC brothers and sisters. We do have our Ask the Mailbag segment. Submit your questions to social at NALC.org. You can follow the NALC on social media. You can find links to our accounts in the episode description. And you can follow President Renfro on Twitter at BrianRenfro19. Thank you again for listening. May your steward be by your side and your union have your back. Thanks.